54. Joshua chapter 24, verse number 1. Praise God. Joshua chapter 24 and verse number 1. Praise the Lord. I want to just share something first. Praise God. You could take that scripture down, Christine. Let me just share something. Had a weird experience this morning when I, I got here to church. I just want to share it with you. Maybe it'll just like, well, you know, what's that worth, you know, much to say about. This morning when I arrived here, I got out of my car. I was walking up the front sidewalk over here. And I just had the kind of the strangest sensation, just kind of a weird sense. And it wasn't a bad thing, at least to me it wasn't. And I found myself, I was ready to, you know, let myself in and, and do the alarm. And I, I just found myself kind of going back out there with bag in hand and just kind of looking around and just looking up at the sky. And for me, just in that moment, it was the strangest little thing. It, it felt like it was evening. It was, it's morning, but it felt like it was evening, it had the look that it was evening. It had the feel that it was evening. It was just the way the sky was, the way the light was, the way everything was. It did not feel like morning to me. It just felt like evening. And I just did this double take. And it was just the weirdest thing. I said, Lord, what is all this? What is, what's going on here? It, it feels and looks like evening, but it's morning time. And I said, either I'm crazy, I get off, you know, it's been a busy weekend, whatever. And then I found myself kind of going through the scriptures because I can recall in scriptures something about morning and feeling like evening and evening like morning and stuff. And I said, what is that? And Deuteronomy 28.6, Christine, 28.67, it says, in the morning you will say, if only it were evening, and in the evening, if only it were morning, because of the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. And that's found in Deuteronomy 28, where there's blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And the language is almost reversed. It's like a mirror image. God pronounces all these blessings if you obey me, all these curses if you disobey me. And all of this undoing will happen. All the security, all the prosperity, all the blessings Everything that God promises and did happen for Israel as they obeyed the Lord, all of it gets undone if they disobeyed him and went to serve other gods. So there's this great big undoing. So all of these securities and all of the safety they felt would turn to anxiety and to fear. And they would reach a point where they would say, because of all that's going on and all the terror and all the Chaos and order. When it's evening time, they'll wish for morning. When it's morning time, they'll wish for evening. And I just thought about our, our country and our nation and all that's going on in the world. That doesn't it feel like there's God has provided. Uh, that's, that's a wrong choice of word. God is undone. Maybe the blessings. In a sense, he's taken his hand off. That there's. There's a lack of safety. There's a lack of security. There's a lack of prosperity. There's a lack, 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 lack. That all the blessings now are kind of inverted now. And it feels like all of that's being undone, 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 undone. And I just wonder, you know, just my little experience out there was maybe just maybe a warning. 
maybe somewhat of a, a bugle-to-the-mouth kind of warning, um, although it's coming in a very humble way of possible, you know, times of great suspense and great fear and anxiety and great stuff that's coming down the pike that we have to understand whose we are, who we belong to, who he is, and that no matter what happens, and if we find ourselves, boy, it's morning, I can't wait for evening coming. It's evening, I can't wait for morning to come and just get me out of here. This is a time to press into God and to understand he's our heavenly father. He's obligated himself to those who belong to him that no matter what happens, no matter what goes on, he sees a sparrow fall to the ground in the wilderness. He sees you. He sees what happens in your life. And he knows what's going on in your life. And he wants to be. And this is no time to play games. This is no time to, you know, straddle the fence. This is the time of the return of the Lord. We're in that season, everybody. We don't know the day nor the hour, but we are there at the season of it. And I say, press in, press in, press in. That no matter what comes down the pike. And this is Joshua's words to the Israelites here in Joshua 24 and verse 1. is to press in. And he rehearses all that God has done for them. And then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I signed the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help. And he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived each of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. Then Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you, but I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I deliver you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did all the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hevites, Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings you did not do with your own sword and bow. So I gave you the land in which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And this is what God would absolutely, you know, undo if they disobeyed him and ran after other gods. He's rehearsing what he has done for them. Now fear the Lord and serve him. With all your faithfulness, throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river 
and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The summer of 1967 was called the summer of love due to the excess of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and the migration of 100,000, well, they called them hippies, including five flower children who convened and relocated themselves at the Haight-Asbury District of San Francisco in this cult, basically a counterculture movement. It was a year the Beatles came out with the album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, which none of you have heard about, I'm sure. The Vietnam War was in full swing. The public opinion against the war was in full swing, and that was negative. It was into that world of flower power and anti-world protest that an ancient prophecy was fulfilled on June 7, 1967. It was when the Jewish people in the Six-Day War returned to the city of Jerusalem. And that was important because that was the missing puzzle piece that went into place that could now fulfill Latter-day prophecies. That was the turning point. That was the biggie. That was huge. The Six-Day War became the turning point of the Jewish immigration from all the exiled places around the world to come back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. In fact, when Israeli General Mordecai Gur said on the radio, the Temple Mount is in our hands, that broadcast, not only broadcast in Israel, but around the world, around the world, became this electric-fying thing for all the Jews to suddenly want to go back home. And the Lord promised that in the Old Testament that he will bring his people from the northeast, west, and south to return back to the land of their forefathers to fulfill prophecy while the world was going along its course in 1967 and with all the world events that were happening, God was still working out his plan, his purpose, and his prophecy. What does this show you? That God is real. His word is real. It's unchanging. And if God can work through every event of 1967 to fulfill his purpose, he can work through every event of 2022 and work through every event in your life to bring about his plan and purpose for your life, just as he did the Israelites for those 40 years from the the place of Egypt all the way to where they are now, the promised land. The title of my sermon this morning is Men of the House. Man of the house. And with Joshua's declaration, there's no doubt who the man of the house is in his house. And there's no doubt who the man of God is in his house. And would that we would have a million more men who are men of the house and men of God in their houses today. By definition, man of the house means the male family member who was the most responsible for taking care and making decisions about the household. And Joshua chapter 23 and Joshua 24 is Joshua's two main declarations to the Israelites just before his death at the age of 110. Interesting, these are his final words. You can tell a lot about a person by their final words. You can tell how they live their lives by their final words. 
President Dwight D. Eisenhower is quoted as saying, I've always loved my wife, my children, and my grandchildren, and I've always loved my country. I want to go. God, take me home. Lady Astor woke up from dozing off only to find her family members kind of staring at her and standing there, said, you know, am I dying or is it my birthday? <laughs> Actor Humphrey Bogart reportedly said in his dying words, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. I personally, I like the final words of a dying king named David in 1 Kings 2, 1. It says, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong and show yourself a man. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. His addresses were to keep the covenant. And Joshua 24 is to renew the covenant. It's stay true to the Lord. Remember what he's done for you. And in our text this morning, these are God's people who in an Old Testament sense have arrived. They are in the promised land. The promised land is a type of our salvation, but they're in the promised land. And through the leadership of Joshua and all their conquests, they have driven out the enemies. He's provided for them. They are time-tested. They are battle-weary, battle-scarred, but battle-victorious. They're there. They are there. But despite the victories and the conquests and all the manner which God has provided for them, something was happening to them that can happen to the people of God even after the Lord has done so much for them. What happened to them and what came upon them was this restlessness. Restlessness. Restlessness can bring about a sense of indecision. And that's what Joshua here is talking to. He said, get off the fence. Make up your mind. Make a choice. Stop straddling the fence Like prophet Elijah of old on Mount Carmel, when he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. Translation, and another translation, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? Like Elijah, Joshua is challenging their restlessness and to lift off all their moral, intellect, spiritual restlessness and to simply make a choice. We're in a day now, everybody, you got to make a choice. There is a power in choice. These parents that dedicated children this morning made a choice. It's a powerful one that God doesn't take lightly. He just wants you to make a decision, to make a choice. Joshua 24, 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then what? Choose. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers serve beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father God, bring back a passion for the house. Bring back a passion for your house, your house. Bring back a passion for his house. And the Bible says in Mark 11, verse 15, one one reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area, 
began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you made a den of robbers. You talk about a man of the house. We talk about a man of the house. In that classic movie, Rudy, when Rudy is about to play his last game as a senior against Georgia Tech, Notre Dame coach Dan Devine makes this passionate pregame locker room speech. He says to his players, no one, and I mean no one, comes into our house and pushes us around. I think Nehemiah of old, who was rebuilding the walls, probably was the inspiration behind Dan Devine's speech because they were facing threat with every kind of turn. Nehemiah 4.11 says, also our enemies said before they know it to see us, we will be right there among them and kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, whenever you turn, they will attack Nehemiah. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, their spears, and bows. After looking things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. What is Nehemiah saying? Same thing that Dan Devine said. No one, and I mean no one, comes into our house and pushes us around. Lord, give us a passion for our houses and say, no devil, no demon in all of hell is coming in here and it's going to push us around. Amen? Interesting that not many Christians today, some don't have a passion for their house. They don't have a passion for their homes. Spiritually speaking, not fighting for them. Simply because they don't see their homes as sacred. They don't see their homes as sacred as the church. Not as the church. My home is not as sacred as the church. Here is sacred. My home is not sacred. When you do that, you underestimate and undervalue God's heart and purpose for your home. Everything started with family. This whole civilization did not start with no church. It started with a marriage. It started with a family. And then God began to relate to that family in the context of a home. They didn't have a home until the tabernacle showed up. So God's dealings with them was as a family, as a husband. And the father in the home was, and he was the head. He was the leader of the home. He was the man of the house. He's the one who brought the teaching. He's the one who opened up the, the Pentateuch. He's the one that taught the word of God. The church is a mere extension of the family with God as the father. Don't ever say my home is not sacred. The church is sacred. We're going to go to church on Sunday morning because that's sacred. No, your home can be just as sacred, even more so than this church, when Jesus is a part of it. I know that choosy mothers choose Jif, but blessed are the homes when choosy mothers and fathers choose Jesus. Amen? And to me, for all of you husbands and fathers desiring to be the man of the house, and all you single parents, some of you female, who desire and dream of a man of the house, you can be that and have that when you make Jesus himself the man of the house. Amen? And the first point, and I just have a couple, 
is that that happens when you choose to make your home his home. When you choose to make your home his home. And he's not coming in but by invitation. I stand at the door and knock. Anyone opens, I'm coming in. Amen? The handle is on your side, or your side, not his side. All right? Greatest fathers in the world are godly fathers, especially those that are priests in the home. The priest is one who stands in the gap between the living and the dead. You stand in the gap between God. Priest is the one who's in the, you know, in between the two of them. They are representations of God to the family members. They are in the gap. The Bible says Job prayed for his children in Job 1.5. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. His home was God's home. And he was a priest in that home. 2 Samuel 6.11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom. The Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him in his entire household. I think we get so wrapped up in going to heaven that we forget that we can actually bring heaven down to us and have it fill our homes. Amen. <laughs> heaven can do that. So choose to make your home his home. Number two, another way to make Jesus man of the house is to choose to have a strong sense of commitment. As for me and my house, commitment means assurance that this family will stay together no matter what. Commitment says whether hell or high water, we are doing life together. We're sticking together. Divorce is not an option. We are going to see this thing through. And there's two ways to express commitment to your children, everybody. Number one, tell them and make them reassured that they are a blessing, not a burden. Make sure they know that they're a blessing, not a burden. And number two, make sure they're loved unconditionally. Make sure your children not, you know, feel like they are conditionally loved. We live in an achievement-oriented society where performance equals significance, ability equals importance, and achievement equals self-worth. Sorry to say that's crept into the mindset of some homes. Nothing alienates a child more than them thinking they have to work and work and work for something that should come so freely in your home, such as love and acceptance and self-worth. And if you raise a child in conditional love, it'll get into their hearts, it'll get into their minds, it'll get into their life stream of who they are, and you wind up with two different results. One could be a workaholic, where feeling adequate comes by working my butt off because I need to feel adequate. Or number two, a quitter, can't please mom and dad so what's the use and that'll stay with him forever ask yourself do my children know they are a blessing not a burden do they know that i love them unconditionally there's nothing they could do more nothing can do less to make me love them another way make jesus man of the house is just choose to have a good communion not communion in the sense of the lord's supper but just sharing your life with one another be a family that's connected Shut off the technology when supper time comes. Shut off the TV when dinner time comes. Shut off technology for a week. See what happens. Your family may be revolutionized. How that would go over, amen? In a survey of 1,500 children asked this question, what do you believe makes families happy? Over 95% of them said, not so much a big house, lots of money. What made them happy was doing things together. Children always spell love this way, T-I-M-E. Another ingredient of a strong family that makes for a blessed home is good communication. 
How many of you have good communication in your home? Nobody. <laughs> Strong families are held together by good communication. Communication is discussing the burdens of your heart. It's opening up your heart and sharing your life and your feelings together. My family didn't have all that. We were on islands in my home. Nobody shared nothing. Nobody. I think I had one serious conversation with my parents all my entire life. I kid you not. It was just buried, repressed. Nobody talked. We just didn't share anything. So we just repressed our pain and our hurts. And we just, you know what I'm saying, just bought it down. We just, that's all we did. There was a lady who went to her pastor for counseling one time because she was one of the divorce from her husband. Pastor began to fire serious questions at her. Do you have any grounds? Her answer, three acres outside of town. You've been there. No, I mean, do you have a grudge? No, she said, I have a carport. No, like, does your husband beat you up? No, she said, I'm up at 6 a.m., an hour before him. Oh, my, what am I asking is, do you have a case? Her answer was, no, I have a John Deere. Ma'am, what I'm trying to ask is, are you and your husband having any troubles? And she said, oh, yeah, lots of troubles. And the pastor said, like what? And her wife said, he just can't communicate. <laughs> Marriage counselors tell you over half of all divorces are a result of poor communication. And that, that if they could just learn to talk, they could have saved their marriage. Number five, Jesus as the man of the house. Stand behind any man of the house that has a plan for his family. He has your back. Joshua said, as for me and my house, I don't know what everyone else is going to do. I don't know what the rest are going to do. Go serve the Amorite gods. Go serve these gods. I don't know what anyone else is going to do, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. Even if our nation goes that way, we're going this way. They go that way, we're going this way. We are going to serve the Lord. And he made no doubt in his home, Joshua did, where he stood, his wife and his children had no doubt where dad stands and where he was taking them. We are going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Again, it's just a powerful choice, and I accentuate that word powerful. It's powerful with God when you make a choice, not just Sunday morning, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and things just diminish through the week, and all of a sudden, boy, I need church again. I need the word again. I need to, you know, be prayed for again. No, not at all. Your home is sacred, and your parish is at home on Mondays and Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and this is an extension where you come in, and we're celebrating family. We're celebrating all that God has done in your lives. We're celebrating what he means to our lives. We do it corporately. Noah was a man who lived in the midst of the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst conditions there ever was, even worse than today, if you can believe it. The people were absolutely wicked, but Noah walked uprightly before the Lord. Hebrews eleven seven by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to the saving or the salvation of who? His family. Noah saved the human race by saving his family. What a thought to consider. You're saving the human race by saving your family. 
And I got to think that God was sitting in heaven and looking around at all that he, you know, the Bible says he relented that he even made man. Everyone's doing wickedly. Everyone's, the stench, you know, in his nostrils was so bad. But then he, his eye catches Noah and he sits up straight in his throne and devises a redemptive plan to save the world through one man's desire to live right and through the saving of one family saves the whole world. The salvation of our homes is so paramount to us as families, to us as parents. We can build our homes, we can build our houses, but there is the choice to design our houses and to bring a climate of prayer, a climate of worship, a climate of godliness, a next kingdom, a kingdom coming kind of climate in our homes that is so powerful, so powerful. God so wants to bless. He so wants to protect. And we are so going to need him in these last days. You know, who knows? We're going to reach evening and wish for morning. We're going to come morning and wish for evening. And it's going to be that kind of everything just out of order, out of chaos. And another shooter drop every single day. I don't know if we're going to be there. We have to know God. We have to know who we are and who we belong to, everybody. I can't say this enough. Right now, it's all about salvation. It's about souls in a small farming community in the 1930s. There was a woman who was having difficulty delivering her sixth child. And the doctor said, you're probably not going to make it. And when her dying breath and after giving birth to her sixth child, her dying words were, Charlie, make sure you get our babies to heaven. Make sure you get our babies to heaven. Moms and dads, the most important place you can take your children isn't to work, isn't to t-ball, isn't to softball, isn't to a dance. The most important place you can take your children to is heaven. And you can't literally take them there, but you can bring heaven into your home and give them a taste of heaven and taste and see that the Lord is good. Jacob did in Genesis 35 too. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. There was two boys camping out in the backyard of one of their homes one time and they're out there and one of the dads decided to kind of eavesdrop on their conversation, and one boy kind of made a boast to the other boy, my dad knows the mayor. And when he heard that, the other boy said, well, my dad knows God. And the boy said, no, he doesn't. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. And the father proudly heard him say, how do you know? Because I heard my dad talk to him this morning. Boy, there's no way children can think of us that they overhear us talking to God, that we know God. Lastly, what will move the man of the house to bless your family is when there is a strong sense of consecration. Consecration, by definition, is simply a choice. It is a, it's an outward declaration to make something holy, to dedicate something for higher purposes like these parents did this morning. That's what Hannah prayed. Lord, I, I give him to you all the days of your life, all the days of his life, may he serve you. You are dedicating them for a higher purpose. Your home can be a higher purpose. Your car can be a higher purpose. It can be a taxi to bring people to church. Your home, your, your skills, your talents, your abilities, all that God has given you is meant to flow through you and onto others, 
unto others. I can remember on our wedding day, Janice's 85-year-old pastor who married us prayed this prayer over us, and he says these words. Remember these, hun? May Christ be the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, and the silent listener to every conversation. His prayer was for us to consecrate our home, dedicated to him for a higher purpose. And maybe that goes back to my first point, is my home his home? Is your home his home? Is this home his home? Is this where we do church? Especially if all that comes down the pike that you are fearful of and what's brought you trepidation and brought unrest to your life, this is going to be a place where we come to and find refuge one with another. If this is taken away from us, guess where your parish, guess where your church is going to be? It's going back to your homes. It's going right back to your homes. Former pitcher Greg Swindell, who used to pitch for the Cleveland Indians, wore a modern-day phylactery, which he called his baseball cap. And Greg was a proud father of Sydney, who was born on January 21, 1991. That was an important date for him because he had Sydney's name put in uh, small letters in the back of his baseball cap, and her birth date was typed underneath the bill of his cap. And he would say that when things are going badly, when I'm getting shelled, I can take it off and look at it and know what I have to look forward to when I get home. Joshua as much told Israel, I don't know what you will do when I'm not here, but this is what I'm going to do right now, and this is what I hope you'll do when I am gone. Our kids will make their own choices. One day your children are going to leave home. One day they will set up their own house. And I pray that your children, when they set up that house, will declare us, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the chances of that happening tomorrow greatly increases when we ourselves make that declaration today. Amen? Amen? Praise God. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Hallelujah.